Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you in today. If you've come here via YouTube and want to know more about what we do, as always, just head on over to officehours.global, our primary web portal for more information, links about the show. Uh, today is day two, right after the show. Don't forget, one o'clock, our day two from SIGGRAPH LA. Alex Lindsay and the crew will be on the show floor doing all sorts of stuff. Alex, did you have a note you wanted to make? It'll actually be one thirty. We're going to we'll be a little oh, late. Oh, one thirty. Okay. Uh, it'll be one thirty. We, we had to shift our schedule a little bit. So we'll be starting at 1.30 or shortly Perfect. after <laughs> as we work through it. Yeah, It was great yesterday. We were able to wander the show floor, have back and forth conversations with the people there. I learned just a ton. And uh, it was just fabulous. You and Nick Justishin did a great job of, of giving Wait. us an overview of what's happening at SIGGRAPH. And it was fascinating. Um, and if that yeah, wasn't yeah, we, enough in our... Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, finish up. Go, I was going to say we had we had a great we had a great. Uh, go, go ahead and finish up. I'm sorry. We're, oh, okay. We're, well, I was going to mention morning. if that wasn't enough. Our second hour guest today, our special guest is Carl Winkler of Electrosonics. If for those of you who have been around the production industry for a long time, there is no more storied name in the idea of wireless audio than Electrosonics. They've been there forever. One of the most trusted and re reliable names in wireless audio. And Carl's going to be here to answer your questions live. They've got some new products, and we'll be looking at those. That's our second hour today. And uh, Alex, did you have another note before we finish up? That was really all I had to start things off. Yeah. And if you looked at l last week, I mean, Electrosonics uh, kindly lent us some of the stuff we're using actually uh, for um, for Seagraph. Um, those are the, the wireless systems that we're working with and they're really great. Uh, they've been working extremely well. Um, the uh, uh, what I was going to say is that the the yesterday was really a lot of fun. We had two cameras. Um, we'll talk a little bit more, obviously, in the next episode, uh, about a little bit more about how we did it. But um, but the it was uh, a really uh, fast. I mean, we we really had a good time, kind of playing around with this idea of multi camera. We finally got the multi camera working with uh, with the live view, and so we were able to kind of get two feeds in and wander around. And and I think that I would definitely, if you're watching, go back. And take a look at what we did there. Um, it's a different format than what we've done in the past. And by the way, a real quick reminder while I talk about this is that we got some questions that got pushed back overnight. If you're, you might want to push your questions back forward, check your notes uh, to make sure that those questions get pushed back into Makana for today. Um, the, um, uh, one of the things that, that, uh, uh, that we experimented with is a different format, which is really like just two experts walking through the booth. We didn't have a lot of structure to it, so we didn't have like, well, oh, we're going to this booth, and there was some chaos there. But we're, but we're figuring this out because I think that, you know, while we were trying to figure it out, I'm just kind of like, and now we're going to move this way, and now we're going to go that way. And uh, and we're still working out. I mean, some of the things that we're working on is like, what kind of camera rigs should they have? And so this today, you'll probably see an experiment in other camera rigging um, to make that actually happen. So we're, you know, our... Uh, uh, Cassie is a new new member of our team that was shooting down here. Uh, she comes out of uh, of um, reality, uh, a lot of reality work here in LA, and um, and she just came with this crazy rig. We'll so we'll, put, we'll show pictures <laughs> when we do the behind the scenes. Um, and she had this crazy rig with an FX3. Uh, so I had the the um, uh, you know I have it was the FX3 there. I, I brought you know of course an FX30. And, uh, and so I thought that was gonna be the main camera until she showed up and I was like, Oh, well, that'll be the main camera. And so, um, so anyway, so she, uh, she, she kind of built it all up and, uh, but we, and then, um, yeah, Robert Green was the, was our second camera. He got my camera on a, on a tripod and, and we kind of wandered around. I think that I really feel like, um, I don't know how it felt for you, Bill, I think you were the only one of us here that was there, but you know, just, just kind it of felt touring great. around. Not, it felt great. Right. I, I mentioned yesterday at the end of that, this is like going to a show, a trade show with two people 
who are guiding you through it who really know this topic really well. So it really increased the amount I learned about the products as we wandered through the show. It's great. Yeah, and I felt like you felt you, you had a lot more of a feeling for the show when we were wandering through it, that you're really there. You know, it wasn't as much of a stand up and move and stand up and move, but really a, hey, we're just we're just having a good time. Here. Mike Seymour from FX Guy just <laughs> at the very beginning, I saw him standing there. I was like, come 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 in here and start talking to us. And uh, and we we grabbed onto some unsuspecting folks at booths and just started asking them questions. Um, and uh, so it was uh, it was it was a good time. So we're gonna. I think I would definitely go back and look at it. Let us know what you think in Discord and. We're going to be doing, I think it's tomorrow, right? I think we're doing, um, we're talking a little yeah, bit about Friday how is we're the, covering the show. Not tomorrow, Friday. Or Friday. Friday is the post-mortem on the show. Friday. Tomorrow is, yeah. Tomorrow's Jonas Dottel and uh, So our request, well, right, Jonas is talking to Play Out B tomorrow, um, and we moved that because we were like, Jonas is available. Let's make sure we get that in there. So um, so we're going to be talking about it on Friday, uh, and um, definitely watch today and tomorrow. They're not going to be perfect. We're still figuring it out. We got IFB working, so we were able to do that a little bit cleaner than we have in the past. Um, so a lot of little bits and pieces um, that we're getting. We've got the multicam working. We've got a lot of, we're going to be doing some more tests with um, you know, HDR a little bit. That's not going to be public, but we'll post it on Discord. Um, and, uh, so, and then we'll do another show, 1.30 to 3 today, approximately. Um, so, uh, so, so stay tuned for that. Um, and, uh, we should, we should have a lot of fun. So you're watching office hours evolve in real time, essentially, if you come into some of these, uh, extra programming pieces that we do. It's just fascinating. I mean, when you look at it, the thing that, the thing that's really interesting about it is, is that we were talking about this a little bit last night. Uh, the you don't see anybody else doing what we're doing there <laughs> like, like everybody else is maybe shooting some footage maybe covering a little bit and especially seagraph it's not a video heavy uh so there's only a handful of people covering it, but they're doing little little snippets of each thing but you don't see anyone kind of providing a you know a live feed from them and you know just kind of covering that and we hope to really build that up the team's starting to work on ibc we're, we're going to be working right after this week we're going to be working on um, on NAB uh, New York. So those are the, all the ones that we're ramping up for immediately after after this one. So, um, but we're going to keep on refining the solution, trying different things like the IBC team will probably do something different than what we're doing here. Um, but we're going to be keep on trying these things because I think that there's a real need to, you know, we've seen this over and over again. People are talking about they don't want to, you know, there's a lot of people who can't can't get to these events and how do we really make these events available they can't get the visas they can't get the time they can't get the money and you know we're there's this great experience of seeing all these new things and how do we bring that to the rest of the world so um and and how do we do it in real time and that's the thing that we're really working on and you know trying to make it more accessible you know to everyone else and i think that that's you know we're not there yet but we're experimenting with it and it's it's kind of a fun process it's also it's also a fun time to meet everybody <laughs> like so so uh you know i, I meet new people uh, i didn't know a bunch of the people that we're working with to, you know and and then some are repeat some are, are new um and we're able to kind of um you know kind of build that build that out around so stay tuned for more uh, definitely watch yesterday and today remember that we are streaming live you can ask questions so you if you're watching the live feed if you see us feed and we're somewhere you're a couple you're only 20 seconds behind watching the live feed you can jump in ask questions about what we're doing we're usually spending enough time somewhere where your questions will percolate to us fast enough that we can answer those so um you know stay tuned for that in the and you'll be using the same econa that you use for this show so there's nothing new about the q a um so stay tuned for more more around that 
My comment at the end of the show was that this is, you know, if I was young and starting out in the industry, these are the kind of programs I would watch because it really gives you a flavor for what this community is like, the kinds of things they talk about, the level of technical expertise. And if I was really excited about uh, graphics, the kind of things that SIGGRAPH has specialized in for 50 years, I mean, this is the 50th anniversary of the show, I would be all over this getting excited about an area that I wanted to explore for my career. So I do think this is going to be a very powerful uh, process of going to trade shows, going to niche things, and bringing it to a wider audience and get people excited about these things. So, all right, uh, that's a lot about yesterday, but we also have to take care of business today. Chris Fenwick is our reader today, and Chris is going to dive in. Oh, you have one more last thing? No? Uh, John John had a comment there. How was it for you? Oh, John. I thought thought it was really good. You know, Bill said it multiple times, having people that know what they're talking about, know the people, know the products is is just invaluable and and alex did a fantastic job i propose that alex be the host at every remote show that we do going forward from now on yeah, alex gets to travel more. and and i want to see alex ride that bike with the <laughs> oculus today can you get a little gopro on you and ride that little bicycle around that track okay. <laughs> I'll see as backup i want two percent of your travel miles <laughs> just yeah, exactly <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we did so many of these with Twit, and I did, you know, we used to do a live, we used to take a live view, and I was just by myself wandering around aimlessly through, uh, for years. Uh, so this is definitely, that. this is the format that I'm, you know, the most accustomed with. We've been playing with different formats, but the one I'm used to is just, I'm just going to walk around with a, with a live camera. It was fun to have two cameras. I think that we're still figuring out the cadence of yeah. where those cameras go, but I, but I do think that it, it makes a difference. I think eventually we'll end up with even more. You know, we that that backpack will do up to five, so we may you may or up to four, so you may end up with us, um, uh, you know, doing three or four cameras in the future. Part of the fun of it was the ballet of oh look, there's Peter in the shot. <laughs> you try to figure out what, yeah, yeah, exactly. what's the second camera. Like, We're all yeah, live. You have to move. Here? Yeah. And I told him at the beginning, I said, I said, don't worry about it. Like I said, we're just going to, we don't know what we're going to do with this. We're just going to, you know, just if we get cameras in the shot, I'm not worried about it. And and I just made it like, let's just figure out where to you go here. And then half the, half the battle is always people cutting through the, cutting through our shots and standing in front of our cameras. Um, you know, that's the, that's the number one issue that we end up with. And I'm always amazed because it's something I will never cross through. I, you know, if I see someone shooting, if I see someone shooting, like they are a tourist shooting pictures of their friends, I will not cut through the camera. Like, like, you know, and I'm always amazed when someone just like, just wanders through the cameras. I'm just like, really? <laughs> like, you know, like you, you couldn't just walk like three feet this way. I, I, I'm very judgmental about people cutting through cameras, you know, so <laughs> anyway. Production obliviousness is still a thing. <laughs> it's not even obliviousness. It, right? It's you, you can see them like I, I can see them look at the camera. They'll look at us and then they'll just decide that, that they don't have to they don't have to deal with this and they're just going to walk through it. It's not even oblivious. They are literally willfully walking through about half the time. And I'm just like, oh, my goodness. You, anyway. All right. All right. Well, it, it was fun and it'll be fun this afternoon and it'll be fun in the future as we do more and more of these. I think it's time for our first uh, non SIGGRAPH um, question of the day. So, so before we before we move Chris. on, I just want to say, Alex, you know, I, I don't know what you were actually doing in terms of like dealing with the cameras, but this is something that uh, we've been having a lot of discussions about, about in a live event, in a live thing, how do how does an on-camera host refer to or host slash uh, moderator 
deal with the camera operators like that. And one of the things that I've been kind of leaning into is uh, if you've ever watched any of Joe Rogan's podcast, he had his tech guy is named Jamie. I've never seen Jamie, but he always talks to Jamie. Hey, Jamie, can you call up the, hey, Jamie, can we get a shot of, hey, Jamie, can you go find the website? And Jamie just becomes a character on the show. And I think the best way to deal with stuff like that is just say, hey, Peter, can you get a shot of this? Take a look at, you know, and just let the, just, you know, here's the thing. We're all media professionals, kind of. Uh, We're all media professionals and we get it. There's crew people, whatever. Just talk to them and and not try to be like too, you know, perfect and proper. Just cash it down. Hey, Peter, can we get a shot of this? Look at that. And then, boom, everybody gets to see what they want to see. Anyway, we'll move on. Uh, We'll play with that today. You'll see me me saying, hey, why don't we get a shot of this over here? And uh, we'll we'll, we'll give that a shot. We get it. You have a camera crew. It's it's not, you know, it's not magic. We get how it works. Yeah, yeah. Let the camera well, I, people be part of the show. They don't. You don't have to I see them. I, they don't have to wave. We're not going to drop a strap on them. But just talk yeah. to them. I, do I think just it's have fun two words for you: th- three or four words. Logoed bowling shirts. Okay, now I'm out of it. You know the yeah the uh, um, what what is fun about live? What really makes live work, and what we find is really hard for folks to get good at when they're used to post is they want everything to be perfect. And part of what makes live work is just that you just let it go. Like you just let, let it, it you let that part go and you, and I even feel like when we do lives, we work, we do lives with people who come out of TV and stuff like that. And they want every little thing to be perfect. I'm like, there's a conversation going on and you're just having a, you know, we're all just hanging out and that's really what makes it warm and interesting. And anyway, so it's, it's I mentioned we'll, this we'll, we'll, recently. I'll, I'll play with the direction. Yeah. I mentioned this recently about editorial that I really find that in the last couple of years, the thing that I'm pushing clients toward more is to leave things alone. Like, let yeah. that stumble happen. Let that person be human. It's okay. Yeah. We're, you know, anyway. So let's get started. Authenticity First, is a big deal. Absolutely. Uh, that's a good way of uh, summarizing the whole thing. So, yeah, I call it the Jamie factor. Just lean into the <laughs> Jamie factor. Uh, Douglas Carmichael says, uh, I've heard of audio professionals using Wacom tablets, Wacom, Wacom, Wacom tablets for long editing it's sessions. It's Wacom. We, we talked to Wacom yesterday. We talked to Wacom yesterday. Did you yesterday. say Wacom? Yeah. They said Wacom. Wacom. They said Wacom. Okay. okay. Let me start Wacom. over. Let me start over. We got over. the whole etymology history of that. We've, we've, now, we've, we've now, we've handled the entire thing. We, we, we've been talking Wacom. on this show for the last two years. Wacom, Wacom, so what, what is it? Wacom. You're saying it's Wacom. Water. Okay, here we go. Here Wacom. we go. Let's Wacom. do it one more time then. Take two, three, two, one. I've heard of audio professionals using Wacom tablets for long editing <laughs> sessions. What tools do they use to control a DAW from the tablet? Mickey Macachor is going to start us off. Mickey, save us, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, I don't think I know any editor or mixer personally that uses a, a tablet to control their DAW. Um, but I would imagine, like, say, with, uh, with, tasks such as manually drawing waveforms so some DAWs allow that that's really good for like getting rid of clicks and pops and and uh, sounds like that a tablet may come in handy um also if you are working with say uh, melodyne if you're manually tuning vocals for example where if you're familiar with the interface of melodyne you're dragging little blips of uh notes up and down the scale i i could see how using a pen 
might be useful for that. And also if you're manually painting um, out sounds in a within a spectrum view, uh, a spectral view, that that may come in handy. But I don't know anyone personally that uses a tablet for, for those tasks. Greg Curta, your thoughts? Uh, I'm going to echo Mickey's sentiments. I don't. I don't know anybody either using um, using a Wacom tablet. Um, and I, you know, all the examples Mickey gave, I can I can see that too. And the only other thing is possibly, you know, using it in some kind of touch screen fashion where it duplicates your your edit timeline or something similar to a slate. Uh, a slate system, slate digital system, um, but uh, other than that, I don't see it saving any time. Um, just in in my head, so I, I don't know. You know, aside from drawing stuff, I don't know what actually you would use it for. I've never seen it used in audio editing. I did see uh, I was on a real big company's shoot a year and a half ago, and I, one of the editors in the in the group uses one of those for video editing and it was real interesting he he was actually uncomfortable if he didn't have his recreation of his desk and it seemed to me that he was using it for navigation uh, as opposed to drawing or anything like that i mean i think we can all imagine if you have something that allows you to draw waveforms maybe a pencil and a, a sheet would would make that a little more precise for you if you've gotten conditioned to it but it was interesting he was still using a mouse with his left hand and the keyboard and switching back and forth but his right hand was always on a pen and the wacom uh wacom tablet so mickey more thoughts yeah, perhaps um, it, it may be more applicable during the uh, sound editorial um, phase of a project where you're doing a bit more, uh, you need more precision. Uh, it might be more helpful there. But once you get into mixing where you want your your fingers on multiple faders at the same time and multiple knobs or encoders at the same time, um, a pen just wouldn't, uh, w- would not help there. That makes sense. Uh, let's move to the next question. I'll also say, just to tag on to this, Bill, uh, mm-hmm. I think the origin of editing with Wacom tablets kind of comes from the old Flame era because that's how, oh, yeah, that's that how navigation sense. came from the Flame. And I'll say that in the late 90s, I had a big 12 by 12 that I used to edit with. And I thought that, oh, well, I guess this is the way to do it. And I did it for a couple of years. And then I just realized this is just a pain. Plus, yeah. when you're working in a... a, a a facility with multiple suites. You can't, you know, be walking around with your tablet all the time. Anyway, moving on. Edward R. Ruiz from Chicago says, hello, panel. Hey, Edward. Uh, I want to purchase a Blackmagic micro panel for a more tactile color correction process. Has anyone seen it used for live camera shading with an ATEM with Blackmagic cameras? It'd be great to have it dual function in production. Alex Lindsay, take us through it. Yeah, we... We did get that originally thinking that we're going to use it for live and we didn't. <laughs> so here's why we didn't is because it, it gives you more control than you want. When you're in a live show, you're not trying to color it. You're not trying to color the cameras. In fact, you don't want to color the cameras. That's something you do before the live show. So um, what we do now, what we did find is that it was relatively useful to um, to to basically use it before and tr- try to get the cameras locked to where we want. But the problem is you're starting to create, it goes through the ATEM and then to the camera. And so um, we found it at the end. Uh, so we did get it for, the, for that purpose. 
We were not getting it as a color correction tool. We were getting it to shade cameras, and we very quickly stopped using it. It was an extra thing. It had the, it had the, these are the ones with the little roller balls, and um, and we didn't find that it was useful. What we did find useful was the shading panel that that is designed for live. So the shading panel with the handles. Because here's the thing: the number one thing you're going to do during a show is affect aperture. So you don't want to color. Generally, you're not going to want to color the cameras. You're going to want to just move open and close the aperture on your cameras. Um, you, you very rarely, you, what you want to do is spend a lot of time matching those cameras before the show. Um, and that's where you have the camera set up. Um, and, you know, we have found that the most labor intensive but effective way to do this is with LUTs, with, you know, to, to basically put, you know, build LUTs for these cameras so that they look correct with that certain lens on that certain camera. And we use a DeMont chart and we match the cameras, you know, carefully and resolve. Um, that is a, it's a very labor intensive and very, it is the most accurate way to do it, in my opinion, when you have a controlled environment. After that, we still use the DeMont chart or we use some, you know, some similar chart and we have the two cameras and we start to match those up. Um, and we can get those cameras, you know, looking, um, you know, very, very close before the show, but still you, you should give yourself a solid 15 to 20 minutes per camera to get those just right to where you want them. Um, if you use, and this is because we're trying to make it creative. We're not trying to make it necessarily accurate. If you want to do it accurate, it's 10 minutes, 15 minutes a, sh- uh, a camera, but someone's sitting there matching all those cameras and getting them all set up. And, um, but we would do that with, the regular shading device it, it really gives you what you need um this the the color wheels did not did not help us at all um we found that it was much easier because again what we needed during the show was just that big handle that we could move up and down chris fanwick everything that alex said in his perfect world without windows in a lab makes perfect sense until you start doing live outdoor sports with afternoon sun in the in the stadium and but the color coloring those cameras and Oh, no, they're totally if you, if a camera dives in for a close up in the shade, they are going to be recolored and rewipe balanced in a split right, second. But they're going to they're going to know what, what point, doing. but they're going to know what white balance they're pointing to. They're not going to use the a color. They're not going to recolor it. They're going to change the color temperature. Right. OK, I mean, they're going to. I've seen people do it, Alex. I've seen people with it, with it. With like a not, resolve not style, with, no, 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 no. But but with with that's what I'm saying. The, the joist the joysticks that you use to shade cameras and trucks, yeah, right. that happens all the time. I mean, right? I, I, I mean, they'll and, change and the white balance, though. Don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting what you. No, 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 no. They'll go from right. somebody in the sun to somebody in the shade. Right. Same camera that gets rewiped. No, no, I understand, but 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 they're white. They're, they're not doing anything other than white balance, right? I mean, they're not doing. They're not. They're not going in. Oh, I'm going to pull some more red because that's like an. That takes you into Never Neverland with a camera. So, so I'm just saying they'll turn it to this is a 56, this is a 32, this is a 68, this is a whatever. When they're inside, we're going to move to this. I'm not discounting right. what you're talking about. It all makes sense in a controlled <laughs> environment. Live sports is anything but. I'm not right. talking. I don't know Fair how to awkwardly go on to the next question. What do I do, Bill? Help, save uh, me. I don't want to get into a fight with Alex. By the way, Alex. No, it's we, all good. We should probably so, put a let on that camera. Of you. My cue is when everybody I know, stops I, talking. This, this, <laughs> I can't figure out what it is. This room has been a disaster. It's so the let. You I, have I to put a let on that 12K for, to, do it, to use it for live. No, this is, this is actually the Sony. This is actually the Sony. Um, oh, okay. Then not, I take a, neither tape one a of these cameras. CTO in front of the camera lens. That's what I do. Yeah, neither one of these cameras like the color and the, the color of the light in this room probably through these shades or whatever that are here and i can't quite get it right and i'm, I'm going home after well this. then i'll so ask you I'll one other question my... are you healthy because <laughs> are you well no i can't <laughs> your color so the problem is, is that 
again, the 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 problem is is that the I the the Sony and the 12K both have the same problem, which is that I can't color it with the switcher. So the switcher, I can't make any fine adjustments. I can just change color, like I'm white balance. And so if I brought my 6K, which I had in my bag and decided it was not, it was superfluous. If I brought my 6K, I could have just went and just tied it, tied it right in. I will never make that mistake again. <laughs> and so anyway, and I don't have, I'm not set up on this little laptop to do, to open, um, resolve you know and, and try to figure it all out so and i haven't had time so like okay. rebuilding a lot was not going to happen this week. we're still super happy to have you here even if you're a tiny bit greenish today yeah. that's okay well yeah 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 exactly <laughs> we'll let's on go it. on to the next question uh the next question it comes from mr paul wallace in austin texas hey paul uh behringer according to a community member is reintroducing a lot of products with new chipsets discuss uh, and Alex Lindsay has his hand raised for this one, Alex. Sounds like it's going to be cool. I am, as the, as the uh, I'm a proud owner, but the owner of a lot of Behringer sequencers and so on and so forth. I think it'll be fun to have those. They're not going to be the real thing. And, you, you know, you're not going to, I mean, the, the Behringer ones are kind of like, I always go, you want to, that's the kind of thing you want to fiddle with at home. If you're going to actually do something for real, it's not something you typically bring into a studio. Um, but I think that, I think it's great that they brought some of those um, down in price and made them more available to, um, to average, you know, uh, people. Uh, like me, it's not my main, main business. It's just something I like to fiddle with. So I've got a bunch of the Behringer stuff at home that I that I you know spend some time with on the weekends. Uh, Alex, do you think I, this has anything fiddle, to do with but, the KPM but, uh, file fire and they're needing to do uh, new chipsets to kind of design their products around? I don't think so. I think they're just evolving. I mean, I think that they're these are new. These are from what I saw in the article. They're just new devices. So they they built out some new pieces. I don't think it doesn't look like they're re-releasing things as much as they are putting out new. Uh, new devices that they're replicating. A lot of what Behringer's done in the in the sequencer world or the synthesizer world is really replicate old ones that are no longer being made. Hmm. Interesting. Everybody wants the old sound in the new era. And let's move on. Next question. Uh, Marty down from uh, Marty Adius from Maryland, USA says, "What are some ways to affix Windows applications?" to a display so that they don't move around. Oh, the curse of wandering windows. Marty, how do you address it? Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe this seems to be a recent problem because it wasn't before. So maybe it's due to a Windows update or something. I replaced one of the monitors, and, and but I think that's coincidental. So I've got two PCs here on my desktop, and I've got three monitors. And all these monitors have two inputs, right? So... Um, this, the one that I'm using for this show and I use for other online things, um, is basically just for this. The other PC is for business applications. And so two of the monitors, I switch between the two inputs when I need to look at one computer or the other. So, um, I've got applications that I, you know, my, my, uh, audio interface and OBS, they're up there and, uh, the, the VB audio application, you know, I put them on a screen where I want them. And, but now when this is a, again, a new problem, when I switch to the other computer, um, and I use that for a while, then I come back to this one and all of the applications are now other places and it's, it's an annoyance, you know? So it's got an NVIDIA <clears throat> quadro card 
And I tried their application where, you know, that's what the, that's what it's supposed to do is stick things in different quadrants that you can draw and stuff. And it's not working. So I'm wondering what other people are finding. Alex, any thoughts on that could help him? Yeah, I, uh, I'll tell you my, my way of handling this. I have the same problem with the Mac is that you, you restart something with different monitors and suddenly everything's in different places. And then you go full screen and it turns off all the screens, even though that's all you wanted is full screen on that specific screen. Um, and so I've solved it by just continually buying every time I feel like there's something else I have to get to. I just buy another Mac mini that's going to solve that. So, so I just have this little stack of Mac minis that go up the side of my, I have a, a Mac studio on one side and just the base Mac mini. Um, and I put them up the other side and I run them all into my ATEM switcher. And so I use my ATEM switcher as kind of like a, you know, I use an, an I have a, um, uh, KVM for the mice and the mouse and keyboard. And then I have my ATEM switcher and I just switch to a full screen for the ones that I want to use. But what it means is I can cut to them and I can draw over top of any of them. And the reason that that's useful for me is that I, I do a lot of presentations where I have to go to an application and show you something. Then I go to a keynote and I'm going through a keynote. Then I'm going to go back to something. And then I have to be on Zoom. And I want all of those things to be separate operations. I don't want them to be inter intermingled with each other. And um, I found that the rather than buying one big solution, I just buy these little, so these little $500, $600 solutions of, I try to find them on sale. They're the eight gig ones. They just, they just give me the different operations that I need. And then and I know that that sounds crazy and expensive but it, it is a um it is when you get used to it it's amazing because it's just you're not you're not really trying to figure out what windows are over others and everything when you go in like my keynote one i go in i use keynote in it when i do this i do this and it's like they're there are basically they've become appliances you know, that I'm adding to my, you know, to my presentations. Uh, it's probably overkill for what you're doing. I, I know you're just trying to figure out how to get that window to stick where it's supposed to be. Uh, but, but I find that, um, you know, it's, I've had this problem on the Mac side for years and I found that just adding computers was the thing to do, but not expensive ones, like little ones. Like I have other computers, I have little melees that I'm using for other little windows that I have in front of me, you know, and then I have, you know, so those are, I, I try to keep it inexpensive, but and, I, and it seems like a cacophony of computers, um, but it's been a lot easier for me to kind of have everything have its own mode. Uh, let's see, Alec, uh, Marty Atheus wants to come back in. Marty? Yeah, well, actually, I've been looking at the, the Geekom um, computers that are, you know, little, little, they're like little Mac minis. They're about 500 bucks or so. Um, and, and that's a very appealing solution but in this case, all these applications have to run on the same computer because they're all being used. Like the audio interface is on this computer and OBS right, is right, feeding right, right, into right. Zoom. And so I, I need to see these all at the same time. And, 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 and they're moving because you're, you're switching your mode. You're, you're switching the mode. That you're, they're moving because you're switching the mode of the computer. You're going from one thing to another. I'm switching. No, it's just the monitors switching from one computer to the other. From one input to the other, the monitors are switching. And, and for some reason, the computer is not recognizing that there's still a monitor there. Right? Right. Um, and again, this wasn't a problem like weeks ago, it just started. Oh. Yeah, in my case, I've been running across some of the same kinds of things in terms of monitor. I want this on that screen, and for some reason it's not. And I've discovered, at least in the Apple ecosystem, which may be different, um, 
one of the monitors that tends to take over, I accidentally discovered that a three-finger swipe on it would actually move from what was annoying me to where I wanted to be. But there was no, I didn't read anything. I just accidentally stumbled into it. So I've learned that when I'm working with multi-monitors to try all the options on all the monitors to see if I can get it into a state where I want it to be. And then if I close down there gently and carefully, it will sometimes remember all those settings. And the next time I open it up, it will, it will at least have that in its parameter RAM or wherever it is it stores the monitor configurations. So just a thought. Let's go to the next question. Uh, Jonas Dotel from Stuttgart says, hey, Jonas, uh, what is your USB audio interface of choice for Zoom calls? And I'd like to stress that he says Zoom calls. And Mickey's going to start us off to help us. Mickey? Yeah, um, I usually use, a, I have quite a few Focusrite models of the Focusrite Scarlet line, and I've used them very successfully. Hi, Alex. Um, and um, from the first generation all the way until the current generation, um, I'm also a big fan with, of the SSL2, which uh, provides a lot more cleaner gain compared to the Focusrite family. And for um, productions wherein I need to feed a, a Zoom meeting for, like, if the director is remote or if um, if uh, if the rest of the production is, uh, is listening and watching in remotely, I typically... Go to the Mix Pre 10 or Mix Pre 3 for that. Alex, your thoughts? For a long time, for for Hangouts, we used to use the USB Pre 2 because we gave us these. It's just rock solid. You got dip switches on the bottom. It does. There's no way to screw this up. Like it just it just does the thing, and it shows up always as an interface. You don't need any drivers. You don't need to do anything about it. Um, and we, I don't know, I probably had 50 of those at some point in time. It was just like this is the way we get audio in and out. And it's still, I still to this day use it for a couple things um, because it's just simple. Like I plug it in, it's wherever the dip switches were. That doesn't. There's not a lot to do, and and it just works. It's expensive. It's almost the cost of a mix pre, um, you know, more than a base mix pre. Uh, I will say that um, I my my go to again. You you have to decide whether you need balanced out or not. So that's the real like. If I need balanced out of a Zoom call to somewhere. That changes the whole structure of what you know what I'm trying to figure out how to do. That might be DVS. That might be um, you know using again going back to a USB pre two. Uh, that you know there's a lot of things that we might use for that. Um, the um, but for me, mix pre threes are the thing. You know, and a lot of it is if I for my and I'm this is not a good example. I grabbed when I went on my trip here today. I grabbed the one mix pre I have that doesn't have noise assist. Um, but the noise assist is so good and it's so effective in general. That if anyone asks me, like, okay, I want to build a high-end kit for myself to be on the road or to be in my office, I'm always going to come back to a Mix Pre 3 because of noise assist. It just fixes so many things, um, you know, little fans and little things and, you know, air conditioning and everything else all goes away. And it does it in a very gentle way, like cedar. I've, I've owned a lot of cedars. If you turn those up too high, you can hear that as it's as it's processing in a way that noise assist figured out how to get around. The slopes, the knees on noise assist are are much better than the cedar. And um, so I'm hoping that that we see the the noise assist at least go across the audiotonics group of of mixers and so on and so forth. Um, but I but without that, I I you know I I might as well just have a USB connection to the computer. Like as far as I'm concerned, like it's not. And 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 I do think that the Focusrite works well if you're technical, like Mickey. It's just that I've I have so many people buy those Scarlets because and they're not very technical. 
and then I have to DX them uh, remotely and so much time on my life I'd like back. So anyway, so that's why I'm so bitter about the Scarlets. Chris Fenwick. We need to work on your bitter nature, Alex. Um, you said DX them. What I'm a very you, bitter, you have to understand, I'm a very bitter man. I'm a very bitter man. That's okay. I'm I'm equally angry <laughs> to your. I, I, ra- I raise your bitterness with anger. Um, <laughs> what, what did you mean when you said to DX them? What does that phrase mean? DX is. Diagnose, diagnose them, yeah, okay. yeah. So diagnose what's working on DX them, fax them, you know, fax DX, right, right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think I, the the reason I stress the word calls when I read the question is, Jonas, are you talking about a you know a mission critical broadcast, or are you talking about a casual call with your with your with your friends? Uh, I think I think one of the things, and, and I will say this, just a blanket statement. I think there is a danger of coming to this group for advice because the, 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 a lot of times the, the recommendations are like over the top. All of a sudden I have a $2,000 audio chain and you're just on a call. So is it a call or is it a broadcast? I think you, you have to weigh everything against that. Uh, Marty 80. What's, what's your USB? What's, okay. what's your US interface, Chris? I'm using a MixPre 6, and I'm using a, <laughs> two separate Korg Nano controllers, and I'm using SoundDesk to write. So you're everything. arguing against your own pathway. Is that what you Listen, here's, here's, I'm going to be totally honest with you, Bill. You have a and Alex, can somebody chain. mute Alex's microphone because he's getting really annoying. Here's, here's my concern. Here's my concern. You're spending your children's inheritance. Just think about that when you when you pay for something. You just it's it's so dangerous what we do. It's I'm 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 only half joking. But it's, it's just, so much fun. I have to make a little comment on this. I think Chris does have a point. I mean, we are living in an era where you can get so oh, much thanks, performance at such a point. small cost. Now, there is, you are going to run into the difference between the inexpensive, oh, my gosh, these chips are amazing, and you can get, you know, 60, 70, 80% of the performance for 30% of the cost that it used to take, you will still hit that wall where in a true professional circumstance, if you don't have the reliable stuff that takes more money to design and proof and build and work with, you can put yourself in jeopardy. And at th- that level, that jeopardy may not be acceptable to you. So, and, but, and, I, and I would also like to say that although an expensive setup that I have here, I do this for a living. It has paid for itself hundreds of times, if not thousands of times over. And I don't want to encourage somebody who doesn't make a living doing this to spend yeah. a bunch of money that but, they shouldn't. But I'll spend. also say, we know yeah. that Jonas does this for a living too. And I will say that if you're doing virtual events, you should have, you should, you should budget. If you do virtual events as a service, you should budget $6,000 for your kit and get a proper kit because you can't show up on a webcam and tell people and have people have confidence that you're going to take, you're going to do a good job on their event. So, so, you know, if you're going to do this job and this is the, this is the, the price of, of going, doing, doing this work is that is this, that's your suit, that's your nice car, that's whatever that, whatever you want to call it. Your car, your calling card is how you jump on. Even when I'm in a hotel room in meetings, I'm in this kit because this is what I do for a living. So that's also, even though, you know, if you're man, and also if you're managing these calls, don't show up framed like this. (laughs) Well, it's all the things we talk about here. 
audio, video, lighting, every, you know, you incrementally improve yeah. everything until you get to the point where people go, wow, they must really know what they're doing. And that's the yeah. magic. All let's right. Let's, uh, Marty has another. Yeah, these are very, time. very, very good points. It depends on what your use case is and, and w whether it's a critical nature or not. And, and how many other things do you need to have going on beside the call? Like, for instance, right now, I've got a microphone, I've got Unity comms, and I've got ear monitors, and a lot, you know, a bunch of other things going on. So I'm using an XR18, which has 18 inputs that are available to me and multiple output buses that I can do different mixes on. So I have <clears throat> Unity comms. When somebody talks to me, it goes into one ear, and that's coming through a headphone bus that I've created, plus audio from the call. And on other calls, I, you know, have unity that I need to speak to on a push-to-talk microphone. So that's a, a complicated, uh, very sophisticated uh, setup that's available. Uh, uh, on the other side, my my wife's computer, she has a Personas Revelator, uh, uh, two in, four out, two in, two out. And uh, that can create four different mixes. One of those is headphones. It's simpler yet capable. And then I have an audience. Evo 4, uh, I think it is. And that's a, a simpler audio interface with two inputs, two outputs. And they're all very capable. They all do a great job. Greg. Okay, yeah, quickly, I, I have a... Um an Apogee duet. And I bought that primarily because uh, at the time I was doing a lot of um, iOS multicam events and streaming and all this kind of stuff. And the the duet is uh, whatever USB compliant so that it can it can operate with uh, with iOS devices and it has um, balanced outs. Uh, so I like that, but it is, uh, it is getting kind of old and it's showing a little bit of, uh, a little bit of wear and acting kind of funky from time to time. So, uh, I'm looking for something new. So that's one of the things about office hours. You get a lot of recommendations at a lot of different levels, and that's part of what makes the show special. Um, voting. I just wanted to talk about voting for minutes. We've got a good group of questions still in there. And uh, at this point in the show, your votes become even more important because the higher voted a question is, the more likely it is we'll have time to get to it today. So make sure you get in there and be active about your voting. And we will go on to the next question. Oops, you're muted, Chris. Yeah, that was me. Sorry about that. David Brady from New York, New York City. So great they didn't, uh, whatever. I recently inherited a Yamaha TF1 for the Sunday place. I love the way he says that. Replacing an O1V96. I remember that mixer. And struggling to set up Omni Outs as a feed into my encoder. Any tips or advice? Thankfully, Mickey will help you, Mickey. Yeah, I haven't touched the TF in, I think, almost a decade. Um, but... Uh, just taking my re my uh, recollection of the QL series and the CL series, um, there are all, indeed a lot of tabs and drop-down menus to go through. But if uh, you want something that is uh, a bit more easy to understand or at least spread out over a larger uh, UI, you might want to take a look at um, connecting the, um, the, the board to a computer and running uh, TF Editor. 
because that gives you a much larger interface to, to be able to sift through all the preferences. Next question. Still muted. Sorry. Yeah, I'm up. Uh, Burkhard Friedrich from um, Germany says, in yesterday's office hours, Bill and Alex used a phrase, kerfuffle? Kerfuffle. Okay. Please explain for a non-native English speaker, what does it mean? And has anyone an idea where its origin lies? I believe it's a Yiddish term, but I might be wrong about that. Alex, do you know more about its know. entomology? I don't know where it came yeah. from. I, I, don't know I think where it the comes from Yiddish. Is. I think it's one of those ex, ex, uh, those things that have just come down. It was uh, panged around my house from a German. It's generally side of kind history. of a things got mixed up and people feel a little uncomfortable about it. Like that, 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 that's it's like yeah, a, a small mess in life, but it's like it's usually a, a it's kerfuffle is really a uh, people. You know, being a little uncomfortable or, or there's some friction over confusion, I think would be would be a kerfuffle, but in kind of a, you know, yeah, I think and that's, that's K-E-R-F-L-U-F-F-L-E. So you can find it yeah. on any of the word lookup things and it'll give kerfuffle. you a better definition. It's, very, it's a highly kerfuffle. technical term. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. uh, let's move on to the next question. Another entry into the office hours lexicon. Uh, Bo Cordell, <coughs> excuse me, from Charleston, South Carolina. Hypothetically, there's an executive, I love this, hypothetically, there's an executive who is using his iPad for TV Zoom appearances. Ugh. <laughs> Sorry. It doesn't look horrible. Until we can go full office hours in his office, what's the best way to improve the audio of his iPad rig? Mickey's going to start us off. Mickey? I'd take one of the uh, more simple audio, USB audio interfaces, like say um, one th- some of the ones I mentioned earlier, as a Focusrite Scarlett or an SSL2. Um, those audio interfaces are standard class compliant audio interfaces that don't have uh, much in terms of um, configuration or control via software. So all the controls will be on the hardware itself, and you can plug those in into an iPad, ideally through a. Um, there are many. USB hubs that are designed specifically for the iPad, especially the iPads that have USB-C connectors on them. So you can uh, power both, connect and power both the audio interface and the iPad itself, keep the iPad charged using the using the hub. Uh, some of them even include uh, Ethernet jacks on them so you can make sure they're hardwired into, into the network and you uh, get rid of the good old um, Gilbert thing you get with Wi-Fi. Alex Lindsay. I agree with Mickey. I think that um, using a uh, some kind of breakout, you get Ethernet, you get power, you get uh, you get USB C back out. I would highly recommend, um, as Mickey had suggested, a iPad um, you know with USB C, so an iPad Pro, so that you have the, as much performance as you could get. That iPad Pro actually has the capability of powering. If it's a short hit to a TV network, it can definitely power most USB devices as well out of the USB-C. So you could theoretically just plug it straight in. Um, I would still probably lean. Now, what we do is we send out the the MV7s, you know, but the in a typical radio um, TV hit, they're not going to want them to, they're not going to want a big mic, you know, in the way. They're going to want something that's slightly out. So you may end up with an interface. Um, 
And I'll say over and over again that if I'm going to send it to an executive, I'm going to use a Mixpre 3. I'm going to turn on the noise assist. I'm going to pre-configure it and have them just, once it's pre-configured, you plug it in. You just tell them, plug this in here, plug this in here. We've, we've sent these to many, many executives. And all we have to do is just turn up your volume and turn down the volume. There's nothing they need to do. Um, if you really want to get into it, you could get in, you know, there's lots of ways to manage that. I mean, you can have a, a Mac mini in the in the room and have it Bluetooth into the mix pre and you can actually open up wingman and see what's going on in there. If you needed to, um, it wouldn't be something they'd have to understand. It just has to have the box in the room. Uh, so those are a couple of things that, 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 uh, that, that can be done. Uh, the wingman doesn't unfortunately give you all the control that you'd want with a, with a mix pre. I wish that I wish it did, but it'll tell you what the levels are and you can get a kind of a sense of it. But I, I would still, if you know, we have a stack of mix pre threes that we send out in kits and, and again, we send them out to a lot of people that are non-technical. And if they're pre-configured the way they need to be, they're super easy to use. And they just make a huge difference in the sound. Then they can use a lav, a shotgun that's slightly out of frame. You know, there's a lot of different options there. Greg Curta. I totally agree with, the, with everything said so far. There, there is a possible kind of less expensive option. Um, Rode, I think, makes um, makes a little... A little short shotgun that with a uh, a regular you know, what is it uh, three eighths plug that you can plug you know straight into your into the the audio jack and it does actually it does a remarkable job so if if it's if it's you know if he doesn't have a you know a whole a whole setup with headphones or some kind of good you know good return system that could be a that could be a cheaper a cheaper way to do it, but I think the 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 pro way to do it would be better. And now it's interesting because I've noticed that a lot of high profile people who really should be using a higher end system don't. And I I, I find that I find that odd. And you know because they're 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 typically either on their phone or they're on their their the, you know their their little tablet or even the laptop with nothing but you know the the built ins, um, and and I just find that odd because they they should be the ones who are getting it up there. But Alex, you had a final note. We talk a lot with executives about expressing authority. Do people believe you? Do people, it's not something that you're going to notice. It's something, or, or do people actually believe what you're saying there? And, and, and when you wear a suit, you're expressing a certain level of authority. When you're the, the kind of car you drive, you do that. And in the same way, your, your virtual presence makes a difference. Um, and I'll oftentimes say it to a side when I'm talking to them is that we don't, you know, we have a hard time believing the press and believing politicians and so on and so forth. And I think COVID had a big in, impact on that because you had all these people coming in on really bad cameras and really and it was just hard to take them seriously you know and and so i think that um you this is one of the cheapest ways and easiest ways to um to basically you know gain confidence just through the quality of their participation i know that we say that we it should just be about what we're saying but it's never just about what we're saying it's how we're saying it it's how we look when we're saying it um all the studies show that the content of what you're saying is just it's it's not it's it's a scratch on the surface of, of how you're expressing that content. And by the way, I have to go on the record. I was totally wrong about Karfluffle. It's not a Yiddish term. It's Scottish Gaelic. And uh, thank you to the online dictionaries. That was bothering me, and I wanted to correct the record. Next question. The more you know. Uh, Talalik in uh, Delaware says, uh, 
For location audio video recording, do you tend to use time of day time code, specifically documentary work? Uh, let's go to Mickey. Mickey. So yeah, I would typically start off the day by getting my uh, my master uh, time code master aligned with time of day. Um, but after that, I switch it over to free run, and all my generators are on free run. All the audio recorders, all the cameras. Uh, will be on free run because bear in mind that uh, frame rates like 23.998 or uh, 29.976 do not uh, run at the same uh, speed as an actual clock. They're, uh, so if you keep uh, them at time of day, they're going to have to skip uh, frames in their generation. So start the day w- with taking the, the code from the actual uh, clock time of day then set everything to free run. Chris Fenwick. You're so smart. I did not, I did not know that. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and and what and it doesn't have to be a big giant documentary. I mean, we do multi-camera corporate shoots all the time. You could do a stage thing. I mean, if when you start getting everything set up with, with time of day time code, everything becomes easier. You can go in your editor, you can sort by, you know, the clips, you know, that are generate, you know, the the order that they were generated. And in doing so, if you're, and again, I have my specific editors that I use, um, I can find everything that was start, that started rolling at approximately the same time, regardless of what camera it came from. All of a sudden, I have all three angles of a take all at once because they're on the same time code. I will say this, that quite often, and I don't know why, quite often, I can't get the camera guys to set the clock in the camera and it drives me nuts. Because they don't know how to operate the menus, I think, sometimes. I think there's uh, a battery that dies, but it's so yeah. infuriating. It's like, really, are we still shooting in 1981, guys? What's going on? Mickey, come back and help. I, I guess that's why uh, the the... The sound guys are, or sound department is in charge of uh, managing time code in the on set. Um, but yeah, it's it's as Chris mentioned, it's a, it's really handy for like say even you know in on a doc- documentary or any unscripted uh, programming that you're producing, reality shows, um, magazine type shows. Um, you are. Um, all everyone that's in the production, including producers, including directors, uh, script supervisors, can uh, while they're listening in and watching the frame, uh, start making notes for editorial, and they can just simply look at their watch and okay, it's a nine thirty. Um, this line was said on nine thirty. This is a a um, a, uh, a an excellent soundbite for the editor to use in the cut, and all these notes can be passed on to picture editorial and. They can very easily find it. Everybody has a time code reader on their wrist. Let's go to the next question. Next question comes from uh, Peter in Houston, Texas. Uh, anyone had good or bad experience with the Sennheiser A5000 CP helical UHF antenna for use with radio mics or in-ear monitors? And then there's a link to the thing. Marty, Marty hey, help us out. So this is a circularly polarized antenna. <clears throat> um, a standard antenna that we would use for wireless would be either a monopole, which is just a straight stick, or a paddle, um, which 
you know, looks like a triangular thing and it's highly directional. Um, one of the problems with those is that the orientation of the transmitting antenna on the transmitter, it, there might be a, uh, a little wire that comes up, whether that is vertical or horizontal, if that doesn't match the orientation of the receiving transmitter, uh, your RF reception will be greatly diminished. So this is a polarity issue, whether it's vertical or horizontal. And when people who are wearing the transmitters move around, uh, and depending on what they're wearing and how you mount the, the body pack on them, this, this could be an issue. So a um, circularly polarized antenna actually creates a circular pattern and that can pick up the the signal from any orientation that it's in. It's also very highly directional, and so um, is much more effective and consistent. That's one of the coolest graphics I've ever seen. I don't think I really understood circular polarization until you showed that, and that really changed a lot of uh, my thinking about that. So well done for pulling that out, Marty. Appreciate it. Uh, let's see, where are we? I think we have time for slipping one more question in. Let's do it. Uh, Ronnie from uh, Norway says, best way of compact pack of compact packing 12 pieces of Shore MX418DC goosenecks in a Pelican or SKB. Who makes custom foam that fits not six, not eight, but 12 of these? Even better, who makes the best custom foam inserts for anything? And Mickey has an answer for you. Mickey, who's your go-to foam cutter? Uh, for um, custom foam, uh, my case builder has been pretty excellent. Like over over the past like ten fifteen years, uh, for custom uh, uh, foam for especially for rack drawers, they 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 do excellent work with, with those. Just um, and yeah, that's one thing I was gonna recommend for uh, for an SKB like a rack uh, flight case. Um, let's get uh, drawers with locks on them. And custom cut the foam for for those mics. Um, for Pelican cases, though, um, I'm I'm a fan of using the Pelican cases with the padded dividers. That either that or the ones with the truck pack dividers, and putting the microphones in um, in cloth bags and having a narrow, long compartment made out uh, of the truck pack or the the padded foam for for the microphones. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. Well, it's about time to make our transition. We've got a couple of minutes here and I've got a few pieces of business to do. Uh, don't forget, we have a packed show today. Not only uh, is our SIGGRAPH Part 2 coming up at 1 o'clock, 1.30, excuse me, 1.30 Pacific Standard Time from the show floor in Los Angeles. We also have a special guest, Carl Winkler, who's I just appeared in the panel and is going to be taking on your questions here in just a minute. Got a couple more little details rounding out this week on the show tomorrow. Thursday, Jonas Doddle will be here discussing Playout B 2.0. Most of you know Jonas is a huge part of the Office Hours family and his development efforts have uh, to create a low-cost but very high-functioning video player for streaming has hit a new milestone. They're about to introduce Playout B 2.0, so he'll be here tomorrow to bring us up to date. Um, on Friday, we're going to be doing the breakdown of the tech we're using to do the live SIGGRAPH coverage. So, I've been astonished at the quality, the flexibility, 
this system has really performed super well from a crowded show floor environment, which is very difficult on its own. So if you want to understand more about how we're making this happen, and if you see things this afternoon as we go back onto the show floor and continue our coverage, um, you know, we've we've been developing this system for months and months and over show after show. We've been doing NAB and CES and, and all the rest of these shows um, and it, it's been an evolution. And I think literally yesterday and today has been the best we've ever uh, managed to do. Alex has been a great floor host, and he's able to do this. Let's just go this direction and let's just go that direction because these systems are so well tuned up. We're getting very few dropouts. The audio quality is excellent. And one of the reasons I believe the audio quality has been so excellent is our next guest that you will hear from in just a couple of months. So that's going to be our second hour in just a few minutes. Don't forget, Saturday is our education day. So um, we'll be doing general discussion about well, whatever the next step is on our education system. And Sunday is the only day we don't stream live. So that's the that's what's coming up. Now it's time for me to toss it to Alex. Take it away. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours, uh, second hour, and uh, we're really glad to have all of you. Today, we have Carl Winkler uh, joining us here. Carl Winkler is the Executive Vice President of uh, Product Design and Distribution uh, for, for Electrosonics, um, and he is here to talk about uh, the the new D2 system. Um, so this is the, the new D2 system that Electrosonics is coming out that really works in a lot of different areas, filmmaking, live, uh, broadcast, and so on and so forth. Welcome, Carl. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Oh, it's really, really good to have you. Can you give us a little bit of background of Electrosonics? I think a lot of times, the first time we have someone come on, we kind of well, like, how did this all get started? So, so where did where did Electrosonics start? Uh, we started in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in 1971. So we've been in business for 53 years, which is amazing. Uh, I've been here for one third of that time. Um, the company really started out with voice amplification, making what we call voice projectors, which are really. Uh, in many ways, a glorified bullhorn. And these started being used by law enforcement, <laughs> auctioneers. So this started as a bullhorn? I mean, I'm sorry, yeah. this incredible wireless started as a bullhorn. Yes. Oh, that's great. Uh, we made portable lecterns and things like that. That's where the name comes from, electrosonics, lectern, and sound. Uh, so a lot of people that needed a portable sound system for doing their sales presentation or whatever would buy these systems. Uh, as we approached uh, around 1980, uh, the company was sort of, you know, not growing. They brought in a new president to kind of turn things around. And he realized that we should be focusing on wireless. It was the one area that he felt like that should be, you know, it, it could be profitable and we should concentrate our design efforts in that area. So by the late 80s, uh, we became very popular with ENG news outfits, particularly in Chicago, uh, WGN. And from there, the film uh, production uh, sound people learned about us and realized that you could have the combination of a good wireless, which was available, but a portable wireless. And that's where we became famous. Um, in uh, recent years, uh, most of the films that uh, won an Academy Award for sound production used electrosonics. That's Whiplash, Mad Max, Hacksaw Ridge, Dunkirk, uh, Sound of Metal, Top Gun, Maverick. So those, all those films are made with our, our portable wireless systems. So that's kind of our brief history in a nutshell. And, and, and as a side, I, I've probably owned uh, 
I don't know, 10 or 12 different versions of your system. So, you know, over the last, uh, you know, 15 years. And so it's definitely something that we've really relied on as well. And we're relying on them again. Uh, Electrosonics was kind enough to let us uh, use some of these for what were our coverage that we're using uh, later today. Um, yes. The uh, what what do you think? There's all these people using it. We used it. What do you think makes it makes the difference with Electrosonic uh, wireless compared to everyone else? Well, one thing is that our products are all made here in-house. Uh, we've always done that. We've always invested in machine tooling. We've invested in the kinds of people that will do the intricate design work, uh, mechanical programming, electronics, radio. Um, and it's it's pro only. Uh, we don't have a lot of different tiers of quality. Instead, we have a broad range of products all at the very top quality. So everything's made out of metal. It's made in-house, as I said. And we've developed some proprietary and patented uh, algorithms and things like that to get the most out of the electronics. So, you know, for many years, it's been as much if, and now even more software driven than it is hardware, but the hardware has to be solid. So that's the main reason is we've concentrated on the top end and to make durable, really great sounding products. Yeah, I, I will say that uh, again. As a longtime user, you it feels like it's something. You know, it's it's it it has this kind of weight, and this the the machine the, the workmanship has always been really really high end. Now you've come out with a new D two. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, in a nutshell, analog wireless has been the standard for a very long time. Uh, about twenty years ago, we brought out the digital hybrid series, which is generally the ones that you're familiar with. Uh, like the LR is the little portable receiver that's high quality. Uh, so more recently, we've delved into pure digital systems, and this gives us a number of advantages. Uh, that's, but the main thing is that with our broad range of products, all in the same quality, first we wanted to make it backwards compatible. So you might be able to use the hybrid systems that you already own with the latest digital receivers. So that's one unique thing we had to design in. That's always been our philosophy. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of different form factors. So you get the high quality of digital, you get the ability to encrypt the signal if you need it, and some corporate work requires that, some sports coverage. In fact, NFL issued an edict about encryption required on the field now. Uh, so you can do that with digital, uh, but we wanted to make sure it was available in every form factor from the rack receivers uh, all the way to the tiny portable receivers, tiny portable transmitters and everything. So. That's the D2 system. It's got all the stuff in it that you expect from the hybrid, plus the ability that you get with digital. And these come in, I, I, looked, at, I looked at a little bit of them. These, these are coming in, when you say multiple form factors, I think for people who are listening, what that is, yeah. you know, there are mic plugs. So this is, you take your existing mic yep. and you just plug, the, plug that transmitter into the bottom of it. There it is. Exactly. And that mic plug, we use that. That's what, that's what we're using today. Yeah, so we're using these mic plugs popular. here. Um, exactly. And it's super useful because now you have whatever microphone you want to use. Um, you're able to um, just simply plug it into the to the end. It can provide 48 volt or not. Um, the then you have you have mics. I, I noticed I have not used your mics, um, but you have a full full uh, built mic there. Yeah. So that yeah, so is that's just our your stick st mic exactly. And this one takes yeah. the Sure Type thread on capsules, for instance, which gives you the ability to use your favorite head. We make a head, and then for for ENG work, we make an extender that uh, to, for the flag. So it's an huh. extra long version of the same. It's, it's the same transmitter, but with an extender for the flag. So that's the stick Oh, that's mic. really interesting. 
That's great. And then, and then of course there is your, you know, standard belt pack. Um, the belt pack is the, and that's a TA, is a TA five. Is that right for the, for the microphones? Exactly. Uh, that's our standard connector is the TA five. That's one of our belt pack units in the digital uh, product line. You can see it's quite small. Uh, we do make a smaller unit that uses a limo and this was designed specifically for theatrical applications. It's of course found use in television just because it's, it's so tiny. And that's the only one that we use the Limo three pin on. Everything else is TA five, right? And and the and and what are the and how is it using the, how is it making the digital transit uh, transmission? You know, for that process, uh, it is. You know, how is it? What what frequencies? Uh, what's the you know what's the um, packaging for that? Sure. So, uh, audio digitized on the way in with a high quality converter. And then we're using eight PSK transmission. It's a type of uh, modulation that's eight phase keying. Uh, we chose that for its robustness. Uh, it tends to work very long range. Uh, we've taken it a mile uh, with 50 milliwatts as an example. Uh, you can also dial it way down to very low powers and it works well. So this is transmitted. We have- And why would you yeah. Why would you turn it up or down? So why would you turn it to a really high, high uh, power or low power? Uh, the high power would be needed in situations where you might need extra range or you might have a higher RF noise floor. So, you, you know, it's always right. about a signal to noise, right? You got your signal right. and your, and so that's why you would use high power. The general rule is use the lowest power you can get away with. And why do you, why do you usually want to use the lowest power? Is it just from crosstalk? Is it from noise? Yeah, you don't want to be adding to the noise floor. You know, the more power you're putting into a given space, uh, with multiple devices, uh, the more you're going to raise the noise floor. Plus, there's some interaction between the units known as intermodulation. Right. Digital helps reduce that, uh, but it's not zero. So you want to keep right. your power as low as possible. And then you were saying, you so that's the, that's the power, and then, and then, of course, then you have the digital packets. That's right. And uh, so in 8PSK, you know, there's also packet headers, which is where we put some of the metadata, like the battery uh, telemetry and uh, ID information from the unit. Uh, that's picked up by the receiver, demodulated, decoded, error corrected, and then translated uh, back from digital to analog for audio or onto Dante if you uh, are using a Dante network. So it's been it's proven quite robust. Um, yeah, and, and now I think a lot of us. I mean, there's a bunch of us here that have used the products. I think Greg, Greg, I think wins as the long, the the longest user of Electrosonic. Greg, how long have you used Electrosonic hardware? I bought I bought my first Electrosonics. I bought a 185 quad box used in '94. <laughs> wow, and like, I still use it. That's I great. still and I bought a um, a Comtech, a big Comtech antenna, mm -hmm. and I tell you, I get I get that thing yep. eighteen feet in the air, and we're good to go. Now, but the interesting thing is that the the it looks like there's a move to try and reintegrate VHF um, into into our, our scenario here. Is that is that true? It is. Uh, and part of why is we've lost so much UHF spectrum. And yep. so oftentimes VHF is a good haven to put uh, some of your mics maybe, but also some of your foldback, IFB, uh, listen only. You know, in other words, leave the, leave the uh, UHF for your critical channels, if you will, your, your low latency, um, you know, channels that you don't want any noise on. VHF is a little noisier, 
uh, but works quite well. So that's one place that you can move some of the stuff out of. And when I when I was working uh, a lot in Hawaii, we were doing a lot of ship to ship or ship to shore type of stuff, and VHF works much better over the water than UHF did. I mean, at that time, I don't know if it's sure. still if that's still true. Um, water X is a great reflector, and we've heard great stories about people getting you know half a mile out of fifty milliwatts with uh, with UHF. But VHF does have the advantage of long wavelengths tending to give you excellent range. Now, um, there is a talkback in the new in the new D2 as well, right? And there's there's some you can go both both directions. Uh, there is. Uh, it's it's not both directions, but talkback gives you the chance to using this button on the back, for instance, uh, to reroute the audio at the receiver. So let's talk about in broadcast application, you could be on air and then push the button and the audio is routed only to an assistant. And you could say, hey, could someone bring me a cup of water? Um, and only they would hear that. So those are so you have two on the other side. On the other side, do you have two different receivers, or do you have one receiver that has two outputs? One receiver with multiple outputs, and you can decide which output gets that talkback signal. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, that's some really of the really belt packs have a little toggle switch as well that'll do the same function. So it's kind of handy Absolutely. for a lot of different scenarios, as you can imagine. And Mickey, you had a you had a question or a com yeah questions. Yeah, just going back to the earlier discussion about the uh, VHF, um, uh, I know what you can talk about, uh, Carl, but should should we be expecting a lot more VHF coming, digital VHF coming in the near future? Because I haven't made the, the shift to digital yet. I'm st all my electrodes are still in 400 series. Mm -hmm. um, so should I wait to jump into the digital, wait for more VHF, VHF stuff to come out? Not in the near term. So we do make the IFB platform in the VHF, but at the moment, that's all we're making. Uh, we have new products coming out in that line that'll remain in the VHF, but nothing digital coming soon in that frequency band. And we've got a couple questions uh, lining up here, so let's go ahead and Great. jump into some of the some of the early questions. Well, Mickey was our first stop here. He says, Carl, congratulations on the new position. Does this mean we'll see less of you at conventions like Broadcast Asia? So he's looking for your travel schedule. Sure. Um, no, I'm still planning to get out there. It's going to be very important for me to stay uh, out there with the customers and hearing their requests and complaints and uh, and their kudos for what they like. And, you know, uh, so you'll see me next at the IBC trade show in uh, Amsterdam, and after that, the AES trade show in New York, and, and so on. So I'm still heading out there, but thank you. And I look forward to seeing you at one of those shows. Next question. Uh, Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Paul asks, what's the longest range setup for Electrosonics gear? Uh, probably the longest range setup is to use our IFB T4 transmitter, which provides a quarter watt and can be hooked up to any BNC 50 ohm antenna. And at the other end, probably something like the, uh, the DCR822 receiver. Uh, that's often chosen, something like that is often chosen for a point-to-point -point system to move sound from, let's say, one building to another building across a road. Uh, you know, if you've got a festival and you need, you've got remote speakers, you might want to relay sound out that way. In terms of uh, belt packs and small units, uh, the, the SMQV provides a quarter watt in a very tiny package, battery-powered, and uh, 
it, it could also be hooked up to an external antenna if you like. So it kind of depends on the application, but with a quarter watt in the, in the digital hybrid range, uh, you can certainly get very, very long range. Next question. Next question from Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. And Henry notes, I love my Electro ENG gear shooting news 10 years ago. What's the standard in use nowadays? Standard in use is generally still Electro. Uh, and most likely it's going to be one of our SR type receivers. The latest ones are the, uh, this is called the DSR. This is a two channel digital slot receiver designed to go in camera docks as well as a whole host of peripherals. And Maybe the, the sexiest thing going is the DSR-4. Uh, this is a four-channel version of that. So this is a four-channel receiver in a slot package. You know, very common uh, field production kit is going to be something like a, a sound devices mixer recorder with a couple of these docked in it. So that's eight channels of wireless in a very tiny package. So that's the most common thing you're seeing in the field these days. Next question. Mickey Makachor in Manila in the Philippines. Back again with how big a role will digital microphone transmission over VHF play in the next few years? It's hard to know, to be honest. Uh, I'm not aware of very many digital mic systems in VHF. Not sure why that is. It could be demand. It could be technical reasons. Uh, but I think all spectrum is going to be, you know, digital mics are going to move into all parts of the spectrum because we need every bit of spectrum we can get and mic systems are moving digital. So it's hard to have a timeline, but I would suspect over the next five years, there's going to be more development in that area. And how, how big of an impact uh, did the, what I will call the spectrum theft of, of, you know, <laughs> of the last decade, uh, how, how, um, how big of an impact did that have on our industry that, that from your point of view? Yeah, huge, really. Um, in fact, I was having a chat with our colleagues in New Zealand yesterday because they're going, they're about to go through this spectrum change. And one of the big differences is that there and in several other countries, including the UK, um, the government, having essentially sold the spectrum and collected the revenues for that sale, um, they have offered money to help dislocated users. In other words, those that had to get out of a particular part of the spectrum could be compensated for buying new equipment. Now in the United States, that was not done. So the cost was borne by the users ultimately and their customers. Uh, so, you know, we had to retool, we had to shift our focus to different parts of the spectrum. Uh, we had to innovate and design new systems as well as, you know, that cost gets passed on essentially to users that have to buy new gear. So it was quite a big impact and the majority of it happened in the 2018, 2019 timeframe. Yeah, that and that's exactly why I call it a theft is because I don't, you know, I understand them moving it, but the government made billions of dollars that actually cost potentially hundreds of millions of dollars of, of, of yeah. for people to, if you look at everybody, churches and broadcast and, and yeah. events, the amount of change that had to be made was, you know, was not insignificant. Not at all. In fact, you know, um, I, along with industry colleagues from other manufacturers and some of the news organizations and Disney and so on, we lobbied the FCC in 2014 quite heavily uh, in, in order to uh, help the industry, essentially. And one of the things we brought up was compensation. You're displacing us. You're making money. Let's have a tiny piece of it. They asked how much, and we estimated something like $100 million would just take care of everything, you know, which is a tiny fraction of the 20 billion, you know, that they got. 
And we were told in no uncertain circumstance, you know, with, with no ambiguity, that's not going to happen. So it was disappointing, clearly. Now, we were able to get a few concessions. We got additional access to the 941 frequency band uh, that was expanded and eligibility was increased. But, you know, those are minor concessions. Next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul wonders, how can you prevent intermodulation with your products? Thanks, Paul. Great question. Uh, in two ways. Our hybrid products, particularly the SMQV family, uh, we use what's called an isolator in, in the output circuit, which allows high power and yet very little intermod. It's a kind of a one-way valve of RF. Uh, the key with intermods is that RF gets shared between devices, and when it does, it gets mixed together and output as these phantom frequencies. Uh, with digital, the output circuit is much more linear in the first place, which is one reason why you don't see the really high powers. Uh, you know, a linear circuit requires a lot of current. So the highest output level from the digital transmitters typically is 50 milliwatts from our units, and we have settings lower than that as well. Uh, many manufacturers stay even further away from that and give you a max of something like 20 milliwatts. And meanwhile, the output is staying absolutely linear throughout that power range, which helps to reduce the intermods quite a bit. So that's typically the ways that we're doing that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, right back with what's the unique selling point of the Aspen range compared to the other DSP units like the BSS Soundweb? Yes, Aspen, that's a whole other part of our business that we haven't even really talked about, uh, is our automatic mixer systems. And Aspen was the, the latest generation of that system. Part of it is that we use what's called a fixed architecture rather than a drag and drop type system because we know what the optimized chain of audio is. So one of the big selling points with Aspen is you can use all of the settings on all of the channels all of the time. So essentially every plugin you can imagine, every filter, every cross point, uh, and there's no restriction because the hardware is capable of doing all that. So that's, that's a pretty big one. Uh, and these systems are based around a 48, uh, a 48 mix point matrix, which gives you tremendous flexibility. But I will have to add that the Aspen is coming to the end of its life. Uh, we've had it in the line for about 15 years, maybe a little more. And uh, now it's hard to get the parts for that product line. So the very last large installation of Aspen just went into Australia for their court system. So you won't see too many Aspens in the future, unfortunately. Next question. Mickey's back from Manila in the Philippines. Will there be more channel, a more channel-dense version of venue form factor in the future? Or is four-channel half-rack what we should be expecting? Uh, yes, four-channel half-rack is what to expect, uh, giving you eight channels and one RU. That's about as dense as we're looking to do uh, for the performance that we expect out of the system. Next question. However, uh, I'm sorry, if I oh, can back ahead. up a second. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. Using this device and a rack, and we have a rack coming, you can get 16 channels in one rack space. So that would be the densest. That's great. Uh, next question. Uh, it's actually mine from San Diego. Carl, most of my electro systems had detachable antennas. Are there general rules for changing antenna configs on some of these older systems uh, for wireless audio? Uh, well, you always want to use the appropriate length antenna, particularly on a transmitter where it's a little bit more critical. Uh, and as long as the can, same can you explain how the can you explain length? <laughs> the sure, antenna sure. Length <laughs> the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Me crazy. 
So uh, <laughs> for one thing, we typically color code our antennas. So for instance, on, uh, let's see, here's a, here's another one. And that's, that's an indicator of the length. You know, the, uh, this one is slightly longer. The issue is that these are quarter wave whips. So the center frequency of this antenna is going to be, the length of it is a quarter wave at the center frequency. And these are in the UHF band. So this one is a centered on block 21. So somewhere around 540 megahertz, this is going to be the most efficient. So that's the key for whip type antennas. These are quarter wave whips and you see them on a lot of our products. They're very efficient. Uh, they're simple. Uh, they can be very robust. We usually use it like a braided steel wire. Um, and the same on receivers. It's just that they've gone to a smaller connector. The SMA has become much more common on portable devices because the devices themselves are so small. Uh, in the past, it was BNCs. Those are considered quite large, but that is what you find on the back of rack units, for instance. Now, receivers, the antennas aren't as critical at length it, as we kind of say in the business. You could bend a paperclip into a straight line and stick it in that hole, and it'll probably work reasonably well. It does, it's not super critical on the receiver. Could I ask a follow-up? Does that, does that mean you should always keep the antenna that comes with your system marked to that particular receiver? And then does it cause a lot of uh, less performance if you actually get those mixed up and you have the wrong antennas with multiple receivers? Uh, on receivers, it's not that critical. Uh, on transmitters, you probably should keep them there. In fact, with one of the trends recently is that the units tune across a very wide frequency band. Uh, our current digital units tune across 144 meg. So it's difficult to have an antenna like this be efficient across that entire band. So we actually put two antennas in the box with it. So, you know, the idea is to get your most efficiency switch to the right antenna for the, for the band that you're in with that unit. However, in the field, these things are hard to notice a difference. You, 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 you know, most likely you could have your antenna be a half inch off in length and you probably would never notice it. Great, thanks. And can you explain blocks for our listeners? Sure. Uh, for many years, uh, electrosonics units were made in what we call blocks and each block covers 25 and a half megahertz of spectrum. So you would buy, let's say, a transmitter and a receiver, and you'd need to match the block. So let's say a block 21, that's going to cover 537 to 561 megahertz. And, uh, you know, that's, that's all the tuning range you had. Uh, about 2015 or so, we started introducing what we call wideband units, and they covered three blocks or 75 meg worth. Now they cover six blocks. So it's a good idea to keep... The, the block system in mind, but it's becoming less and less relevant. The only way that it, it is really important for some users is if they are using a legacy unit, like an old Block 21 transmitter, like a UM400A, uh, with the latest, you know, four-channel portable digital receiver. So the receiver gives you the option of restricting its tuning band on that channel to a particular block so that you, you know, so it becomes easier to use. So blocks is just a division of the available bandwidth. Next question. Josh Kaufman coming to us from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, says, how does the modularity of Electrosonics products aid a producer that's looking to build up their kit over time? What would be an ideal starting point and an expansion strategy along your product line? That's a great question. Um, well, we do make a modular rack receiver. Uh, that's called the Benu. Uh, we've made that for many years. And it's a frame that you can put different receiver modules into. 
Uh, but we've moved away from that a little bit because that actually adds to the expense of the unit. Plus, that was more of a block-specific strategy. Now, with the units tuning so wide-band, modularity is, is less of an issue. But typically, I would suggest if you're talking about a portable kit like a field production, you know, a bag system, I would always start with the SR series because there's so much uh, infrastructure and accessories, mounting, powering options, all that available from us and a whole host of manufacturers. So go with the SR and look at the latest ones, the DSR, DSR4. Those give you the highest performance and all the modern features that you would expect. Auto-tuning, uh, infrared sync, uh, you know, the ability to program groups so you can easily find the frequency you're looking for. And then I would look at transmitters that give you the most options for the kind of work you're doing. Uh, typically for field work, uh, it's going to be the DBSM series because these units uh, just have a, a whole host of features and can be set up in a variety of different ways. So it's start there, SR series uh, receivers and uh, DBSM type transmitters. Next question. Mickey Macajor is back from the Philippines with digital transmission. Is two blocks of separation still recommended between the talent wireless and hop and IFB wireless? Yeah, it's a great question. In the old days, we would say that if you had an IFB transmitter in your bag, which is physically a small space, and you've got some talent receivers, you know, receivers are very sensitive. They're designed to pick up weak signals and make good audio. So the two-block separation is still a good idea, and the wideband units give you that option. Uh, we call that band planning, and uh, it, it applies on a stage. It applies in a studio where you've got IFB or foldback or IEM systems that are transmitting into that space. And then you've also got your talent mics, you know, transmitting into that space and being picked up by receivers. I usually recommend sequestering them, you know, put your IFBs or your IEMs down in one part of the spectrum and then leave some room and then put your talent mics in a different area. That usually works out best. So yes, I do recommend that. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, back. Does Electrosonics provide amplifiers? And if so, what frequency range and power level are they? And what's the max legal power? Yeah, good, great question. Uh, the max legal power in the United States is for licensed users, 250 milliwatts in the UHF band. And for unlicensed users, it's 50 milliwatts max. In the VHF band, it's 50 milliwatts max, whether you're licensed or unlicensed. And we do make uh, filter amps uh, in line, uh, the UFM series. So the UFM 230, the UFM A1B1, and so on. Uh, we also make an antenna combiner. That's a power combiner designed to work with our IEM system. So it takes eight inputs and comes out one single antenna output. Those are all sort of related. Uh, but we're, you know, and there's also amplified antennas uh, like the ALP 690. So it depends on which part of the system you're talking about. But we've got amplifiers and filter amps for different different applications. Yeah, and combining those signals is not trivial. I mean, it, it is, uh, if you're talking about eight signals, as someone who's worked on that, <laughs> getting eight signals in and having them come out of one antenna is not a, is not a minor problem. Uh, and that's not. for so that you could have multiple IFB, uh, multiple ho guests or hosts or or other talent, um, and you're all you're all able to deliver that to them in the same antenna. Exactly right. Yeah, power combiner is something you see it most commonly on on stages where you have just huge numbers of of uh, 
IEM mixes being transmitted onto a stage, but also in a studio where you might have three or four or five IFB or IEM feeds. And you don't want to have separate antennas for each of those and have to separate them physically. So you can come into a combiner, which essentially uh, attenuates those signals and then has a very robust, very linear power amp, RF power amp, to drive the output and boost the signal back up to its normal level. Yeah, they're not, they're not uh, simple and they're not cheap. Good ones. Yeah. Next question. Marty Adius, Maryland. Uh, how critical is the stiffness and positioning of the transmitter and receiving antennas? It's not super critical. You know, for, for these transmitter antennas, this is very thin braided wire in a PVC jacket. And as long as it keeps its length, that's about what you're concerned with. You, you certainly don't want to fold it over and, you know, wrap it with tape or something like that. You're going to short it out. But one of the key things, particularly with transmitter antennas, is you want to keep that antenna away from skin uh, on the performer. And there's a couple ways to do that. Oftentimes with theatrical productions, uh, you know, costuming will have a, a sewn pouch that this goes into and they'll keep it away from uh, the, the skin. But in other types of productions where you're really hiding the unit and you're wearing normal street clothes, it becomes a little more of a challenge. So people have devised a lot of different ways to do that. Uh, including using a piece of shrink tubing, uh, a little strip of foam or something, just to give it a little bit of physical separation. Otherwise, much of the RF energy is absorbed. Now, on receiver antennas, you're talking about a much, generally a larger structure, and those have a stiffness already uh, in them. For instance, uh, like the paddle-type antennas, like our ALP series, uh, is on a very thick circuit board material, so they're not flexible anyway. And the key there is to keep them away from large metal objects, like uh, you want to keep it away from a, a big air conditioning return vent or uh, like an automobile, things like that, because those are reflective surfaces and they'll change the polar pattern of the antenna. Next question. Can I, or can, can I just... Uh, oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead, Greg. Yeah, go um, ahead, Greg. Carl, the um, you know, in, in you know, we used to we used to have have the concept where the 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 vertical or horizontal um, you know orientation of the antennas was a big deal as well. Yeah, is that does that still hold true? It does. Um, and so, what he's talking about is the original design of wireless mic systems wanted to take into account, particularly when they moved into the UHF band. Uh, you know, they're sharing the, the, the airwaves with television broadcasts, which are much more powerful. And television broadcasts use what's called horizontal uh, polarization. That means the, the wave is traveling in a horizontal plane. And you see those antennas, like the old big, uh, I mean, they're LPDA type antennas that were on top of people's roofs that had all those veins, right? So those are horizontal polarization. So the idea was, if we use vertical polarization, you know, their signal is, is getting here 90 degrees off axis and or 90 degrees polar. And, and that gives us some attenuation naturally from the TV signals. So we want to keep our antennas vertical uh, for best performance. And, uh, you know, in some cases, though, that's not realistic. Like in a handheld mic, we use a, a helical antenna that's in the tip there. And it can kind of be in any orientation and still do well. But there's also helical antennas or circularly polarized antennas used for receivers. And you see those. Many manufacturers make them from professional wireless systems to RF venue and so on. And those work well for that reason, that they can pick up 
the signal in any orientation. The truth is the signal tends to bounce around a lot and get reflected and get distorted anyway. So their idea is, hey, if we pick it up as, as a circular pattern, we're going to capture all the energy. The downside of that is it's sensitive. It's just as sensitive to horizontally polarized TV broadcasts. So there's, there's always a trade-off. Marty, you wanted to follow up? Yeah, that's actually, thank you, Carl, for expanding on something we talked about just a little bit ago before you came on. And uh, uh, my reference to stiffness is, you know, we've seen transmitting antennas where where they're actually just a limp wire. And whenever Mm -hmm. you put the transmitter on somebody, it just flops right over. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, not the case with these. Despite this being flexible, it's going to have its own you know, structure. And uh, this is about as thin as we could get it and have it not be just droopy. So it's quite tough. Um, These are, I I don't want to say indestructible. People figure out a way to break anything. Uh, But we don't see too many of these broken. And the detachable ones are similar. They're the same kind of wire. uh, But we put a, uh, we have a custom made uh, stainless steel SMA connector that's extremely tough. uh, And these are swaged. So these tend to be quite tough as well. But uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the antenna should be maintained in, in some kind of line, if you will. So it's, it's very bad practice to, let's say, take your lav mic and wrap the mic around your transmitter and have your antenna captured and then stick it in a shirt pocket, you know, for like a pastor or something. Oh, I don't want those wires, you know. Yeah, well, that's not going to work so well <laughs> when you do that. Mickey, you want to follow up? Yeah, uh, companies like RFN, you have... Uh... Uh, what they call the, the diversity fin, which is two antennas ideally uh, used for uh, a single div- diversity uh, system. Yep. One antenna being um, uh, vertically polarized LPDA with uh, omnis uh, on the horizontal, horizontal field. So That's um, right. in, in some situations, I guess, uh, having uh, your di- diversity antennas, uh, your, your pair of diversity antennas uh, polarized um uh, differently, one vertical and one horizontally can give you advantages in uncontrolled situations. Um, it's also interesting that, like with the with the uh, Luxusonics has an antenna uh, that's called, I think, the co- A coax or something like that. Where in coax, it's, yeah, sim- it's simply a coaxial cable that has yes. been uh, prepped in a way so that it acts like like a an antenna. And those situations make it really handy to be able to very very easily mount um the antenna in uh unconventional locations so uh yes while yeah while uh, giving the uh having having your both both transit trans, transmit and receive antennas in the same uh uh polarity um that if that would give you certainly give you benefits uh it, it's not like a a massive uh uh uh, downside in your in your receive capabilities if they're not exactly the same. No, again, in most environments, you, you get a lot of reflections. So a lot of that energy is going to end up in the antenna and the diversity system in the receiver will take care of figuring out where the stronger signal is coming from, which antenna. Um, but yeah, the, the coax antenna is, a, is an interesting device and it's not as well known as we'd like it to be. Um, as you said, it's really handy. Um, when I first started here, I know that 
the first time I learned about this antenna was that they were using them for surfing competitions. They would take our watertight unit, put it on the surfer, and then use one of these coax antennas to run the cable up the back of the surfer and have the tip poking out above their shoulder. So no matter where they were, you had almost direct line of sight from the shore all the way out to the surfer. And, you know, quarter mile, half mile of range, no problem, simply because that antenna element was exposed and had direct line of sight. So they're really handy. But in installations, they could be handy because you can stick it in the corner of a, you know, of a room and paint over it. And it's like there's nothing even there. And yet it's a, it's a dipole antenna and it's going to have really good pickup from that area. So they're, they're a handy tool and you can make them yourself. We have a YouTube video showing how to, how to do it. And that's been one of our most popular viewed uh, YouTube videos. That I, I never thought of just put installing it into the, into the wall. That is, yeah. that's, that's the key. That's the key, the key thing to walk away from today. Anyway, next, next yeah. question. Next one comes to us again from Mickey uh, in the Philippines. How do you, how do the current generation of trans uh, receivers compare to the legendary 411A? How about compared to the SRC, which I currently uh, use most often? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, the 411A is a is a famous product of ours that was introduced in 2003 or so. Uh, it was one of the earliest digital hybrid products, and it's really well known to be extremely robust. And people still use them, still love them. Uh, we can't make them anymore. We can't get some of the parts, unfortunately. But it had a good 16, 17 year run, which is pretty amazing for any technology product. Um, it really set the standard for what a portable receiver could do. So. Our answer to that was that we wanted to make a receiver that would perform as well as the 411A, but provide two channels in the same physical footprint, since there's so much, uh, you know, mounts and people are used to that form factor. And that's the 822. So this is exactly the same size, same cross section, but two channels and a digital receiver with the same or even superior performance. So that's the 822. Based on that design, then we came out with the DSR series. So uh, the SRC fits in there only that it's the predecessor to the latest digital products, the DSR and DSR4. But it's a great question. I mean, the 411A is, is still renowned for its performance. The only problem is it's really big and heavy by modern standards. What was the, did you, did, was, it, was there a huge impact for you with the AKM fire that happened a couple of years ago? Absolutely. Did that affect much of your work? It did. Yeah, it started a chain reaction of parts supply issues that, frankly, only now are we really over. Uh, last year, we spent time redesigning something like 14 products uh, to use new different, uh, you know, A to D and D to A chipsets, as well as uh, FPGAs and other chips that were based on some of the substrates that AKM supplied. So it really, it was uh, quite problematic, as I know it has been for many of our colleagues in the manufacturing business, all the way from Yamaha mixing consoles to other wireless manufacturers. And uh, yeah, it, it, it definitely because, caused a problem. <laughs> because it was basically the, the, the AKM fire was the DAAD converters, and then everyone started looking for other ways to handle it. And as they found them, they just sucked the supply out of much smaller supply chains because no one had ever ordered that many before. Is that, is that about what kind of what happened over the next couple of years? It, it is. Yes. And like I say, they, they also made certain substrates and uh, raw materials that other chip manufacturers were using or parts right. manufacturers. So uh, it, it was devastating. Um, 
you know, there was a point where you couldn't even get cars because they couldn't get certain kinds of chips. You know, there's a lot of A to D converters in cars these days for tire sensors and O2 sensors and all kinds of things like that. So it's, uh, and like I say, we've finally gotten over that, but you know, car prices have never come back down. <laughs> if you've noticed right. that. <laughs> well, once they take that ground, they're not going to oh, yeah. get it back. Hey, people are buying cars <laughs> at twice, twice the cost now. So let's keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's just hang on to that margin. Uh, next yep. question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What happens if 48-volt phantom power is accidentally applied to the balance output of a receiver? Ooh. Uh, nothing should happen. Uh, our receivers are designed with phantom power protection, mainly because they are used in these portable applications all the time and plugged into camera, mic inputs, and things like that. Uh, we did run into an issue. The original Duet receiver, the M2R, it was really never designed to be used connected to cameras. Uh, but people started doing that because it's a small, portable, high-quality receiver. So they would take the headphone out, plug it into a camera input, forget that phantom power is on, and poof, blow the headphone output. So the M2RA, the successor, has phantom protection on its headphone jack, even though you would think you'd never need it. Uh, turns out that we did. <laughs> next, ne- next question. Next question comes to us from Rocco uh, Jones, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Where are we in the small battery technology? Are alkaline and lithium ions still the best options for these small transmitters? In general, yes. Uh, we use a, a um, OEM uh, supplied battery uh, for our tiny transmitters and also our IFB R1B systems. And it's a lithium ion and it, it works terrifically well. Uh, it's about as small and dense as you can get and still have a good runtime. Uh, alkaline batteries are kind of probably gradually easing into their sunset. Um, I typically prefer, and many of our users now prefer nickel metal hydride rechargeables to alkalines, uh, simply because they have a longer runtime, a better power density, more current available, so you can get away with a little bit more. Uh, for instance, some of our tiny portable, you know, units like the M2RA or the DCHR, we don't even recommend alkalines because they just don't provide enough current to run these things properly. They'll work, but they just don't work very long. Um, and then lithium disposables are still the best in terms of ultimate runtime, uh, but they're they're expensive. So it depends on the kind of production you're doing, and if and if they're going to bear the cost of battery usage, maybe it's okay. But the, the great, let's say, two-thirds of the way up is the nickel metal hydride rechargeables. But we do recommend that you get good ones. We recommend like the Panasonic Eneloop Pro as an example. But also the key to those is that you have to have a good charging system, not the cheap fast chargers, but good ones. Yeah, uh, Mickey's pointing out the, the Lada is another good battery. So there's, there's a couple of good ones out there. But don't forget to, uh, to get a really good charging system. And those aren't cheap as well. But uh, and then have a battery policy that uh, where you replace the batteries on a certain schedule and keep track of that so that you don't end up with batteries that are two years old and you're wondering why they don't take a charge anymore, especially if you're using them daily. Mickey, were you going to add something there? Yeah, absolutely. With the SSM, the tiny transmitter uh, that the Carl was holding up earlier, uh, you do have to use those. I believe Fuji. Um, uh, batteries for those the those uh, lithium packs. Um, yeah, the, I just want to comment that started out as a Fuji NP50. That's the battery that we found that worked the best, but we ended up going direct to the manufacturer to get our own version made. Turns out Fuji doesn't make the NP50 anymore. 
Uh, and the only other batteries out there on the market today are kind of knockoffs. And, and so we recommend against those. Uh, this isn't that expensive of a battery, uh, but you know, it's more than the knockoffs. So we just want, want everyone to know that uh, if you find Fuji's and they claim to be new, they're not, they're a knockoff, unfortunately. Next question. Next one comes to us again from Mickey. Uh, should we be looking forward to a wider band future? Yes, I think that's certainly part of everybody's plan is to um, have as wide a band as practical. And you see almost everyone going, you know, we had one block and then three blocks and then six blocks. Uh, we have some types of tuning systems that will go wider than that. So certainly with the scarcity of spectrum, uh, wideband is a key is a key factor. Next question. Well, it's for me, and it's a little bit of levity. Carl, what's the story on the Paul Bunyan receiver sitting behind you in your office? <laughs> yeah, I love having it back there because it's a great conversation piece. But uh, that is a Halloween costume from a few years ago. <laughs> so uh, it came as a wireless. Yeah. Yep, and That's it's uh, it's the LR, which you're familiar with. You can see here. Here's the real one. And the one back there, it has a display that lights up. The LEDs light up. It's got everything roughly to scale with a connector on top and everything. And it got honorable mention. So that gives you some idea of how competitive uh, the, the Halloween costume contests are around But here. does it receive? I bet you it would have won if it did. It, does it actually receive signals? <laughs> no. That's the question. No, no, no. <laughs> that it would be the guys are moving into like it would. Yeah. Interplanetary wireless <laughs> was something that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's got more sensitivity. But the batteries are huge, though. That's the that's the downside. Uh, Next question. Marty Adius in Maryland bringing us back to normal. With There are different methods for diversity reception that have been used. What's the difference, and has one become predominant? Yeah, diversity is a great topic of, of discussion for the wireless technology. Um, I would say that uh, there's probably three or four different methods in use right now. Um, one of the most common is where you have two receivers or two receiver front ends and the signals are blended somewhere in the receiver and you get one audio output from essentially two receivers. Uh, we have a number of units that use that. Uh, something like that, like the 822, we call it vector diversity and the reason is that we add the element of phase alignment. You know, since uh, signals are bouncing around in the room and becoming scrambled and they come into the receiver at different phase angles, this design aligns the phase before it adds them together. Um, there's also versions of switched diversity, and we use that as well. It's, uh, in fact, the famous UCR411A uh, that everyone agrees is a top-notch receiver used a type of switch diversity uh, with the antenna phase. So what it does is you have two antennas, and as we talked about the polarization, uh, what it will do is either add the two antenna signals together in phase or out of phase, depending on uh, what the signal is doing and how much of it is reaching the receiver. That also works very well, and we employ that in a number of our products also. Um, I think that there's uh, types of antenna phase as well, which is where you just have two antennas and the receiver decides which one gives you the signal. And there's some systems out there with that type of diversity as well. So there's lots of ways to make it work. I would say that there's no one that's necessarily superior in all situations, uh, but we feel that the top of the heap in our design efforts is the vector type, which has two receivers and does the phase angle alignment before combining. Next question. 
Matt Parker in Sarasota, Florida is up next. The question is, with the DSQD, how many units can the antenna cable be daisy-chained through? Uh, Great question. So the DSQD, this is a receiver that has antenna inputs on the back and then antenna uh, cascades. We typically recommend that no more than three cascades, so that means a total of four units coming off of one set of antennas. Uh, Any more than that, we recommend you use an antenna distro system. So antennas into a distro and then to the individual receivers. But I know that there's folks out there that have done more than that in cascades, and the key is to have the units later in the cascade, or lower numbers, if you will, have their uh, frequencies tuned more to the center of their band to avoid the edges of the filter. So that's the, the little insider's trick, how to get more uh, units cascaded than what we recommend officially. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas, back again. What frequencies has Lectrosonics used for its gear in the past? What is about the present and for the future? Wow. Well, uh, when we started with wireless in the mid-1970s, we were using low-band VHF. So these are units in, in the 33 megahertz range, which you know was okay for very short distances, like with these portable lecterns, where you're never standing more than six, eight feet away from a receiver. Uh, later, as we moved into higher quality wireless, we got up into the high band VHF, and we still make products there uh, from 174 to 216 megahertz. So that's a nice, uh, nice range of frequencies that work well. And being higher band, it's lower noise, and they work quite well. Uh, most of our products today are made in the uh, 470 to about 692 megahertz range. Uh, not all of that's legal for use in the U.S., but we have customers in other parts of the world that use those frequency bands. And that's the, the meat of the UHF TV spectrum. We also make products in the 941 to 961 band for the U.S. use only. It's licensed use only. And then we have a couple special bands for some other countries, depending on their regulations. I know for some time we made a so-called band 779 for Japan, although I don't think that's in use anymore. And we had some other bands for uh, China and other parts of the world. But most of the world has has kind of conformed because of the, the rise of cell phones and, and mobile data plans. So you know, we're seeing most of the products being sold between 470 and 692 megahertz. Next question. Peter Belbin in Houston, Texas. Nominal single cell battery voltage for rechargeables tends to be 1.2 volts rather than the 1.5 volts from non-rechargeables. How does that affect the performance and run times? Uh, it doesn't affect either. Uh, all of our units use a DC converter inside the unit uh, that's going to take whatever voltage is coming in from the battery and turn it into the internal voltages. You know, these units are running on mostly 3.3 volts inside or 4 volts, 5 volts, depending, like mic bias. You want mic bias to be at somewhere like 5 volts for some models. So these internal converters, as long as there is some power available remaining in the battery, they will convert inside to the voltages. So you don't notice any performance difference from the beginning of the battery's life to the end of the battery's life until the battery dies. And all of our units have, you know, an algorithm that's running, looking at battery life and saying, oh, you know what? The battery is about to die, so we're going to shut down. So you, you don't ever get a pop or a, a whine coming out of it as the battery is dying. In terms of runtime, again, it's just how much power is available, current times voltage. And rechargeables have a lot more current than alkalines. Even though alkalines start out at a higher voltage, they can't deliver the current. 
so rechargeables can, and we take that current and convert it to the voltages needed. Yeah, go ahead, Mickey. Uh, yeah, uh, along the same lines with the uh, with the older 400 series, uh, like the SMQV uh, transmitters, or if you put them up to 250 uh, uh, milliwatts to a quarter watt, it will cons- obviously consume a lot more power than say the 100 milliwatt uh, transmission. Definitely. And uh, one thing to note as well with the uh, transmitters and receivers that, that take uh, two cells, like say. Um, Say the 411 that we mentioned earlier, it takes two 9-volt batteries, but it will yeah. still power off of just one, which is like a fantastic, um, uh, I guess, a f- I, I don't know if you'd call that a feature, but uh, being able to run it off a single a single battery is uh, is excellent. Same same deal with the SMQVs. Yes, uh, those are in, wired in parallel. So you could, in a pinch, run it off a single battery. And when you think about something like a, a single battery unit versus a dual battery unit, really the only difference is the battery enclosure. So these two units are, these are from two different series, but you get the idea that uh, you could run one of these off a single battery. And if you used a lithium, it would run just as long in this unit as that same lithium in this unit. So it gives you some flexibility. I mean, there are those times when you can only find one battery. I've been there. <laughs> Next question. Uh, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What is BIAS-T? BIAS-T. Uh, the BIAS-T is an inline power inserter uh, for a, uh, a, you know, an inline amplifier, like an amplified antenna or one of our filter amps that run off of either external DC or bias power on the coax line itself. So the, the BIAS-T is essentially a power inserter. Uh, it puts if you want to call it phantom power, puts DC power on the coax line to be used by a powered antenna. Next question. Back to Mickey again. This time, we love our dweedle tones, but what is the future of wireless control of transmitters? Yeah, he's referring to our dweedle tone system. This is a, a type of remote control allowing you to change settings on the units via an acoustic signal, like sending a modem uh, command uh, it goes over the microphone and is interpreted by the DSP. You can uh, change frequency, change audio levels. The future is clearly wireless. Things like Bluetooth. Uh, there's some other, uh, you know, remote control platforms that are interesting. The key there is to find a platform that is robust enough to go at least as far as the transmitters in the first place. And our transmitters are known to have long range. So the challenge really is to find a system or a platform uh, that will provide that back channel control that has that will match the range of the units but that's that's clearly the future and there's some good bluetooth options these days and we have the last question we're not, we're not really sure what it refers to so we're hoping that you understand <laughs> I'm read it. It we looked at it we're like what are we doing yeah yeah exactly <laughs> tim mcculloch wichita kansas carl are there preferred electro products to use with the winkler potato projector <laughs> Oh, boy. Well, that's a blast from the past, literally. Um, He's referring to the fact that we did a stunt with a potato cannon um, circa 2009. The idea was, you know, people were doing drop tests, right, and saying, look, we can drop our transmitter from here onto a concrete floor, and it doesn't break. So I thought, hey, we could have more fun than that. Let's bring in my two-inch bore potato cannon, and let's uh, let's fire a transmitter out of it. And so that's what we did. And uh, the results are on YouTube. You can, you can look at it yourself. Uh, but the, the transmitter did not fail, amazingly enough. And we captured audio <laughs> during 
the uh, the shot. So it's quite fun. It was a big topic discussion back in the, in the day. So it's great to hear. Thanks for remembering that, Tim. You have to find an aerodynamic <laughs> potato. I got to do a battery change. Hang on one sec. I love that. He's using his own products for the show. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> yeah, that's great. This is what I'm listening on right now. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Carl, thank you so much for your time. Okay, go ahead. Missed that? Oh, sorry, uh, Carl. Uh, thank, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful questions. Great to see you all. And uh, come and say hi at the next trade show. Yeah, and thanks again for the support that you've, you've given, that Electrosonic's given us. Uh, it's really made a huge difference in the quality of what we're doing. So we really appreciate the support as well. That's great. You're welcome. And, uh, and uh, for, uh, for everyone, and of course, we'll go to any of these booths. Carl's oftentimes there, so you can, you can sit there and, and, and actually talk to him at many of the events that we, we cover and many of the ones we go to. Uh, we traveled uh, 153,000 miles today. It's 247,000 uh, kilometers, and that is 1.25 billion bananas for scale. All right, let's go. I want to thank everybody for uh, for being part of this. I want to thank our, we have some audio experts here that we had a great first hour of, of Q&A on top of having Electrosonic here. We had some great one. We had some great audio experts here. We really appreciate you guys coming. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll keep on doing that. We're trying to, you know, really focus these different days, Monday being business, Tuesday being graphics, Wednesday being audio, Thursday being. And so when you're thinking about what questions you ask, um, Wednesdays being or Thursdays being video, Fridays being logistics, uh, Saturdays are a little bit of education and accessibility, and of course Sundays are just general uh, general process. Uh, so when you're thinking about asking those questions, think on those days and think about what you can ask on those days to keep the conversation going. We really appreciate both the panelists and the producers are asking all these questions. And really, you know, it's a better. Someone was asking me about like, well, do you, they had a new product they wanted to show me uh, yesterday. And I said, I just want you to come on the show. Like the, the audience will ask better questions than I will. <laughs> so, so I, I can only answer. I'm only looking from one point of view and the audience and, and our producers are looking from all these different points of view and it's just a better conversation. So, uh, so anyway, so thanks to the producers for all that, all the great uh, questions that they asked. And then finally, thanks to the incredible production crew. Uh, we have people who are making the show happen, people who are making sure that people, sh you know, know what's happening, the management crew, people who are developing the software and hardware putting the hardware together that makes this actually put uh, happen every single day, seven days a week for over three years. So we really appreciate everyone's uh, effort. Now, now we're going to jump into after hours. I, I just never thought of installing antennas into the walls. Oh, I, I, I need to redesign my studio now. It's a great trick. It's such a great trick. <laughs> and thanks, Chris, by the way, for good. showing the potato can of video. I see that up yeah. in the corner. <laughs> That's fun. I'm, I'm thinking on some of these series where they're using a lot of wireless all the time and they're doing it all on a set. Why not pre-rig the set with the antenna? Yeah. Yeah. They often do, yeah. Do they? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, I've done that in a lot of the yeah. home-based rea reality stuff. Yeah, reality is a good place where they do that. They've got antennas located all over the place. I yeah. never thought of that. That's a yeah. great idea. Mm. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. All right, we're running off to see Graf. See you. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. Yay. Fabulous. Thank, Thank you, Carl. Cheers. Good to see you. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Bye bye. Really good show, you guys. It was fun. Bye.